Welcome to Real Reflections with me, Rachel Close. This is the show where we take a deep dive into the characters and movies we know and love. Today we'll be speaking with Liberty Martin about the film Groundhog Day. I'm not going to be here for the 10 o'clock. Tomorrow is Groundhog Day and I'm going out to Punxsutawney for our country's oldest Groundhog Festival. I enjoyed watching Groundhog because you know I've not seen it. And I really, it, I mean, I thought surely I've seen this film. But then I started watching it and I've watched it twice now in the run up to us speaking. I love it. I love it. I really do. And I have, you know, I have some mixed feelings about it as oh. well. But overall, I just think it's it's so good and it, it's a really unusually strong concept. And I think it's become such a big thing that people know about and it's gone into the kind of contemporary language of, oh, it's like Groundhog Day. But actually to watch the movie, it's so complex and it's so layered. There's a reason that it's so famous. It's really good. Out in California, they're going to have some warm weather tomorrow, gang wars and some very overpriced real estate. I suppose it would help to just give a very quick run through of the premise of the film, just uh, in case anybody hasn't seen it. So Groundhog Day is about a weatherman called Phil Connors. We meet him when he's, he's predicting the weather. He's just saying that a storm is going to completely miss Pennsylvania, the state they're in. And he's being sent on a little uh, filming expedition. His co-anchor says, OK, so it's your fourth year now going to Punxsutawney for the annual Groundhog Day Festival. He's very unenthused about this. The Groundhog Day Festival is a cutesy, folksy kind of festival where everybody gathers together in the town square in this little cutesy town. And a groundhog, which is kind of like a, a funny thing, like a little beaver, either um, he comes out of a little box and he either sees a shadow or doesn't see a shadow, which is obviously made up. And depending on that, there's a legend that if he sees a shadow, there'll be another six weeks of winter. So it's in February, it's cold. And he so doesn't want to go. He's like, God, I've got to go and do this other, this bloody filming thing again. It's dull. I hate that stupid hick town. And I'm just dying to get out of this whole situation. I want a better job. I've got, there are some people interested in me from a much bigger <laughs> network. So I'm, I'm, I'm basically on my way out of here, guys. <laughs> And um, <laughs> one of his colleagues says, oh, well, you know, you've got a new producer, Rita. She's here. She's really nice. She's really fun. And she wants to hang around a bit longer in Punxsutawney, you know, get some fun shots of the people and the activities. And there's this amazing moment right in the opening. This is all the first few minutes where he sees Rita and she's playing with the blue screen. She's wearing a blue jacket and she's making herself disappear on the monitor in front of this blue screen. She's having such an innocent moment of play. And he sees her doing this and there's this moment where he looks really innocent, he looks really open, he looks like he really cares and likes her and what she's doing, which is being silly. And then he hides it and he goes, yeah, yeah, sure, she's fun, but she's not my kind of fun. That's right, she's not my kind of fun, yes, yes. Mm. And then we see what his kind of fun is, which is shit. He goes <laughs> on the trip, he's uh, mean to the cameraman pointlessly, he's bullying the cameraman. He's genuinely sexually harassing Rita. Like, he is a fucking creep. And Rita's trying to get her job done. They do the filming. He doesn't care. He doesn't do a very good job. And then that night, um, he's invited to go to uh, the big party with everybody in the town. And he turns it down. He just goes to his hotel room, says, I'm going to go read Hustler. He's such a creep. 
And he then stays in his hotel room on his own. He wakes up the next morning and it's the same day. The same things on the radio, the same cars are going down the street. He sees the same people on the way to the shoot. And the rest of the movie is him living out the same day, unable to understand it and unable to progress. And it's the progression of his character as he's stuck in that loop. Yes, the original time loop. Uh, trope. I mean, of course it was done before that, but yeah, you're right for us. That is the cultural reference to a time loop. Um, yeah. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Whether you've seen it or not, we've got that reference. It's funny. I mean, just uh, do you just want to kick us off by saying, like, why, why you've chosen it, what you want to look at? Yeah, so I've, I've chosen it because, yeah, I re-watched it recently and had that kind of revelation of, oh, this is so resonant and I really care about this and it means a lot to me and has a psychological progression. It's, it's a, um, I was researching it a bit, thinking about this, and one of the writers said that they did actually use the Kubler-Ross model of the stages of dying as an informative thing as they planned the progress of the character, that he goes through denial and bargaining and um, depression and finally reaches acceptance, but not, all at this, not, not in a linear way because that's not how it works in real life. And that was never really how the model was intended to be like stages you go through. It's more a process of, of trying things out to try to come to terms with something. And yeah, it feels really relevant to now because what he's grieving is the ability to live somewhere else, to go somewhere else, to be in a new day. And I feel like we've all had a lot of that feeling of, I don't go anywhere, I don't do anything, nothing changes in the last few months. So it felt quite relevant to the current moment as well. So I actually never knew that it was based on the Kubler-Ross grief cycle. So the Kubler-Ross grief cycle, for anyone who doesn't know, we've got denial, anger, bargaining, depression, and then acceptance. And was it Harold Ramis who said that, or was it his... Because it was co-written with somebody else, wasn't it? So it was co-written by Danny Rubin and Harold Ramis or Ramis. And... The collaboration between them was quite interesting because obviously studios often will bring another writer in to do rewrites or to change things. But the Danny Rubin draft was a lot darker and it didn't open with the way the movie opens with uh, him not knowing and him being unaware and living the day as normal. It opened with some kind of voiceover of him being like, well, I don't know when it started, but I can't get out. You know, I'm stuck here. It just keeps repeating. So you were in the mire of it right from the start. And it kind of, I mean, it's a really strong idea, but this studio felt it wasn't working. So they brought Harold Ramison, who's much more of a comedy writer. And he said, look, it's a romantic comedy. You've got to start light and start without him knowing anything. And he's got to meet the girl. Like it's got to play out from the beginning. So that, that was a change that then Danny Rubin was really happy with. He felt Harold Ramis came on and made it a much better movie. He was very, you know, it was a good collaboration between uh-huh, them. Uh-huh. And it's the way it progresses. I mean, there's going to be spoilers like all over. So, you know, just be prepared, anybody who listens to this. But the progression yeah, of the spoiler character... alert, we're going to tell everything. <laughs> Nothing will be, no stone will be left unturned. Um, so the, the progression of the character, the interesting thing... 
about how his arc and how he moves from being completely solipsistic, completely self-absorbed, completely, I mean, narcissistic came up as well for me. When he gets to, because when I asked you, what would you like to look at? Um, you, you mentioned altruism and transformation. There's something about um, presence as well. He wants to be anywhere else at the start of the movie. He wants to be at a better network. He doesn't want to go to Punxsutawney. As soon as he gets to Punxsutawney, he wants to be on his way out. And he can't be in the moment. He's, he's so dissatisfied and he hates himself so much. He doesn't like himself. That's made obvious in the dialogue. There's a scene mm -hmm. where he literally says to Rita, she says, you just love yourself. And he says, I don't even like myself. And he's so unhappy with who he is that he can't be anywhere. He's dissatisfied with everything and he takes that out on everyone else. He's a menace. He's actually a menace to the community at the start of the film. Mm -hmm. And then that gets worse to the point where he becomes suicidal. There's a whole section in the movie where he keeps killing himself. He tries everything. He tries putting a toaster in the bath. He tries uh, jumping off the t clock tower. And obviously every morning then he wakes up and he, he can't get out of the loop by, by killing himself. But he goes through real feelings of, of, of suicide. He just wants to die. Mm -hmm. And there's a point beyond that where he becomes honest. He actually says to Rita, this is what I'm going through. And he tries that very early on, but he, it's too shallow. But he really deeply connects with her and says, this is what I'm, is happening to me. I'm stuck here. And he proves it because he knows everything about the town and everybody's life by that point. And she believes him because he's in earnest and she says okay well then I'll spend the day with you I'll see what happens and so they have this great point around the middle of the movie where they spend time together honestly and that's a real turning point because what I should have said is that have it first thing he does after his complete denial where he just can't believe believe it's happening is he goes and he um drinks with some people in a bar has this great bit of dialogue where he says you know, what if you just woke up every day and you were in the same place and you couldn't change anything? And the guys are like, yeah, that's what it's like. And he goes off driving with them. Drunk driving is reckless, is rebellious. It's this whole thing of like, they, I won't play by your rules. And they go and drive on the train tracks and get taken by the police. He gets thrown in jail. And obviously then that has no effect. So he realizes there are no consequences and then he becomes manipulative. Uh -huh. That's when he starts going and talking to women, finding everything out about them and then using it to seduce them the following day. It's gross. And he does that. He tries to do that to Rita, but it doesn't work because every time he tries to take her on a date, tries to make it work, plan it perfectly. At some point she rumbles him because she can smell that he's, not genuine. So yes. it's this point where he can be really honest with her for the first time that he gets to spend time with her, not romantically really as friends, but that's a very important thing because it's after that that he starts to think of others. He starts to do kind things. He starts to become a decent person. Um, can I just go back for a second and pick up on the Groundhog Festival? Because there's a really important bit in that in terms of the psychological underpinning of the film. So the premise of the festival is that the little groundhog has to see his own shadow in order for the seasons to change, in order for spring to, to start. So the use of the shadow as a metaphor just seemed really important to me because the shadow is a big concept within psychological theory. 
So Carl Jung referred to the shadow as the darker parts of our psyche. So the parts that we can't see, the parts that we wouldn't want anyone else to see, the more primitive uh, parts of ourselves, but also the wellspring of intuition and, and insight. So Carl Jung believed that we should go into our shadow we should learn more about those unconscious parts of ourselves, be it through dreams or be it through reflecting on our own behaviour. According to Carl Jung and others, is really valuable. So the fact that the little groundhog doesn't see his shadow, which leads to them being stuck in a perpetual loop where nothing ever changes and nothing moves on, seems like a really important metaphor for the, the arc of the character Phil the Weatherman. It's only when we see the dismantling of Phil's ego, which is his conscious self, and we see him becoming more aware of his shadow material or his unconscious self, that we see him start to make any positive changes in his life, in the way that he feels about himself, in the way that he treats other people. So I just thought it was important to pick up on, on the use of the shadow there. Absolutely. And that dis dismantling of the ego is really interesting in the midsection where he's honest because the first thing he does in that section is he says to Rita, look, I'm immortal, I'm a god. Yes, yes. And then he, that's when he shows her, you know, I know this about the woman who runs the diner, I know this about all, all the people in this town. And it feels like a trick. So she says to him, well, what, I mean, is this a trick? And he says, well, maybe the real god uses tricks. Maybe he's not omnipotent at all. He's just been around so long that he knows everything. Yes. And that's a really deep spiritual idea. The idea that, you know, God isn't omnipotent. God isn't a conscious version of a person. It's just a long-term consciousness, awareness, being, presence, that he is starting to feel aligned with because he can't be a person. He can't bear his own ego anymore. Mm -hmm. It's also in that section that he says... Um, Oh, no, it's not in that section, but there's another point where he says later on, I, I've got to the end of me. I've got to the end of me and there's nowhere else to go. I cannot live with myself. What is the self? It's the ego, mm. isn't it? And then he it tries to really kill about the self. transcending that. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And that's actually it. It's not later that he says that. It's in the suicidal section because the suicidal section becomes the honesty. So he goes to that place where he says, I've, I've come to the end of me. I can't, there's nowhere else to go. And that's the point where he steals the groundhog and goes and drives it over a cliff, which is just the most ridiculous, funny sequence. Um, but that's the start of him being suicidal. And then he comes to the honesty of saying to Rita, I think I'm a God because of all these reasons. And Yes. Essentially, he admits also then to her about how it was for him when he first saw her. So as she's falling asleep, he says um, that he saw her the That's first right. time and he thought, I don't deserve you, mm -hmm. but if I could, I would love you for the rest of my life. Mm -hmm. So it's, a, it's, it's so layered. It's him coming yes. to terms with who he is and what he's capable of and, mm -hmm. and what he can allow in. At mm -hmm. the start, he can't allow in a kind fun, light, spirited woman. He can't allow that into his area, into his own orbit, because he's so self-despising. Yeah, and those, those attributes that he sees in Rita, 
in the Andy McDowell character, the softness, the playfulness, the openness. It's those parts of himself that he's shut down. He can't integrate those parts of her because he can't even integrate those parts of himself. We can assume maybe those were the bits that were shut down in him at an earlier age. To be open in that way could be seen as leaving yourself open to threat. And he's developed all these defence mechanisms, you know, to manipulate, to control, to deceive, to exploit. These are all his um, egoic defence mechanisms. It's only when we see the dismantling of these egoic defences that we see that there's room for something else to come in. And he has to hit rock bottom before the change, before he can get unstuck, before he can move before he can free himself from the curse of the time loop. It's like the time loop provides him this opportunity to sit with himself and to come to know himself and to um, look eventually beyond himself. Absolutely. There's something very um, resonant about the time loop. There's also a way that that allows this horrible character to develop without hurting others permanently, and that allows it to be a comedy. Because for him to be such a menace, for him to be such a bad guy, it couldn't be funny if he was hurting people long term. But he's given this loop, he's given this gift, this opportunity to experiment. And there's something really uh, kind about that, as though it's it's like forgiveness. It's forgiveness in advance. It's saying, okay, you're, you're trying to be better. You don't know how. You want good things. You can't make them happen. Here's an opportunity to learn. Try it. Yes. And it's, he's given that by the structure of the movie. After he becomes honest, he then becomes decent. So that's the next step. After he's had that lovely evening with Rita that he knows he can never recreate by manipulating anything, he just starts being okay for the sake of it. He shows up with coffee and croissants to the shoot. He's kind of helpful and thinks about a better way to do his job. He starts asking people questions, his colleagues, Rita and the cameraman, instead of bullying and harassing them. He's like basically all right for the first yes. time. Yes. And he, he then, having become basically all right, starts doing personal development. He goes and finds a piano teacher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He goes and learns to ice sculpt. He's just make, taking advantage of the opportunities in his area to change for the better for the first yes. time. And then he gets to empathy. So then having just basically become decent, he starts giving money to the man sleeping rough that he sees. And on the way back in the evening from one of his, you know, quite reasonable, unharmful pursuits, he sees the old man collapsing in the street. And so he helps him and he takes him to hospital, but the old man dies. And he's really affected by that. And he wants to save him. So the next day he tries to get him earlier and he takes him for some food tries to save him but the man still dies the woman Uh in the hospital says sometimes it's just his time or a person's Uh time Uh and he you see that he really cares about this man he actually has some empathy and then he starts doing good things then Uh he starts being altruistic in the community he's Uh finding opportunities to be helpful he gives somebody the heimlich maneuver he catches a boy falling from a tree He helps three old ladies, his car's broken down. And he gives a brilliant speech. He takes his um, normal broadcast that he does with the groundhog and he references Chekhov. He talks about the warmth of community in the long winter of a person's life. He's just become connected and poetic and skilled by this time he plays the piano. And that 
night of that day, he attends the party that he shunned back in day one. Rita finds him at the party. He's playing the piano for everyone. Everybody in the community there knows him, cares about him, sees him as a good human being. And he's auctioned off in the charity auction and Rita bids on him. So she, he's, and that's a really physical, material way of expressing his worth has increased. He has become of value to this particular woman and yes. the community in yeah. general. And it's that night that they stay together and the following morning he wakes up in a new day. He's, he's, he's become capable of change. He's become capable of love and he's able to move on. So it's fair to say that Phil moves from a narcissistic position to an altruistic position. Um, he learns how to integrate the perspective of the other, to care about other people, to empathise with them. But at the beginning of the story, Phil definitely shows um, tendencies that we would associate with being a narcissist. So narcissism, uh, the idea of that comes from the myth of Narcissus. And the myth goes something like, when he was a child, his parents were worried about his beauty and they sought advice from the prophet Tiresias, and the prophet advised them that Narcissus will be okay, he'll live a long life, he'll thrive, as long as he never fully knows himself. So then, years later, Narcissus is 16 and he's walking through the forest, he's a hunter, and he's being followed by the nymph Echo, who's fallen in love with his beauty. Echo eventually presents herself to him and declares her love, and Narcissus rejects and rebuffs her, and banishes her back off into the forest, and Echo is never to be seen again. The god of revenge, Nemesis, hears of what has happened. So in order to punish Narcissus, he arranges that Narcissus will walk past a still lake. And sure enough, when Narcissus comes to the lake, he peers in and sees his own reflection. But he's unaware that it's his reflection. He just sees this image of beauty and he's transfixed. And he can't tear himself away from the lake, just looking into... Um, his own reflection, and he eventually drowns in the lake. And we can see that in um, the Arc of Phil's character, the thing that becomes rejuvenating and actually life-saving for Phil is when he learns to look beyond himself, or at least this idealised image he has of himself, this false image of himself, and when he learns to integrate the other and care for other people and give and receive love and compassion and empathy... That's how he's able to break the curse of um, Groundhog Day. Yes, absolutely. And he's um, antisocial at the start, as well as being actively unpleasant to people around him. He he's isolates himself. He doesn't want to go to the party. He goes to his hotel room alone. And he's um, he is obsessed with his self-image. He is a weatherman. He plays this part. He wants to be on a bigger network. He thinks he's better than he is he, or he he has an inflated sense of self uh -huh, and uh -huh. that really isolates him uh -huh. from others yes yeah and, and the choice so of funny. him being a weatherman like the choice of him being a weatherman is so interesting isn't it like controlled by the gods the weather you know and he feels yes. like he has some part in telling everybody about the weather of course the reason that he stays in the hotel that night and has the invitation to go to the big party having wanted to get straight back to pittsburgh as fast as possible is because the storm that he predicted would completely miss the state 
of course, rolls in and stops all traffic and movement out of Punxsutawney. So he is uh, flouted in his belief that he can control events and predict yes, events absolutely. by the weather. There's an element of human against nature there too. Is there anything about it that you personally identify with in terms of choosing this film? Yeah, I think, um, I suppose the, the feeling of, of trying to, I think the point that really resonates with me is when he's, he's overcome being manipulative in order to try and sort of sleep with anybody. And he's decided that he wants to be, he's, you know, he's, he's become aware of the fact that he does want to be with Rita. And he tries to act the part of a good enough person to be with Rita. And Rita always sees through it. Because he, he does his research, he asks her questions and then, you know, there's like a bit where he quotes French poetry to her because he's learned that she cares about French poetry. And he's really putting on a show of being a great person, but she doesn't believe it. And that's because he doesn't believe it. Mm -hmm. And that thing of, I don't, I don't love myself. I don't even like myself. There's a real, I felt that way. You know, I felt like, oh, I've got to act a certain way to make people think that I'm good enough because at the moment I don't, have a sense that I am good enough. Yes. And that's very self-obsessed. That's very me, me, me. And it's, and it's very difficult to get out of because it is a sad, it's a sadness and it needs comfort and it needs uh -huh. healing. But that can only come from within because you're then, you're wanting somebody else to heal that. You're wanting to go, uh -huh. I'm going to pretend to be brilliant so that this person loves me and then they will make me feel that I'm okay. Yes. And that, doesn't work and I had the feeling myself of repeating that of going mm -hmm. I'm going to try that again and again and again in different relationships and then eventually it will work yes and it didn't so I think that, <laughs> that is what really resonates for me it's that yeah. section and then realizing actually no I just have to do things that I care about and I have to start to care about other people genuinely and trust that that will have a positive effect mm -hmm. that that will eventually just be better than mm -hmm. trying to pretend, mm. to try and take a shortcut yes. to, to being um, valued. And you know, the, the themes that we're talking about, like this idea of the false self versus the authentic self, it reminds me um, of a play that you've written and performed called The Peanut. Would you mind just talking to us about the writing of that and where the idea sort of came from for you? Yeah, so that was really fun. So um, I have a lovely friend from Cardiff, um, where I grew up and we had a great uh, sort of friend date which was a few years ago and she was in London and the thing is we, we, we've always been friends but we wouldn't always hang out together just the two of us and we didn't necessarily speak very openly about what was going on for us we're just kind of mates and always had been and then she was in London for some reason and we had a coffee together and just at the end of this coffee, um, something happened. Like the, the kind of, the mask fell away for a second. And, and us having sat there and basically recited our current CVs, were like, um, oh, this is how I'm actually feeling. I'm just having a real difficult time with this and I'm not feeling great about that. And I feel quite insecure in this regard. 
And we felt so much better for just saying that. And then she decided to miss her coach. And so we spent the rest of the day together and um, she stayed with me and we just had a very necessary bit of time together where we could mm-hmm. be honest about what was difficult for us and, and have, have some fun. And we felt mm-hmm. very much um, as though we'd cracked something that day because we could have very easily had a superficial interaction with somebody that supposedly we could trust, like we know each other, we, 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 each other's inner circle. And I think when you, when you start to hide from your inner circle of people in your life, that's really dangerous. Cause then where do you go? Like you've, if you're not honest with, with the people that you've known the longest that you supposedly can trust, that's really psychologically quite shaky ground to be on. So we felt that was really important. And um, we decided to write a two woman show about it, two person piece of theater where we were in duologue. And um, then I remember I had a visit around your flat and you reminded me of this idea of the peanut, which was a metaphor that we'd chatted about back in Brighton years ago, which was the idea there's this inner self and there's this shell and you're rattling around. If, if you're not connected, if you're not being honest, you just rattle around in this massive shell that's too big for you. So we called the show The Peanut and took it to Edinburgh, to the Free Fringe. And essentially that project was amazing because um, regardless of the quality of, of the writing, um, we we spent a lot of time together we were very honest with each other and when we performed it to people that we knew and also uh, strangers you know people came up to us and they were like that's that's how i feel you know i feel like i can't even be honest with people that i care about that know me and that's really isolating and it just having the kind of awareness and then we have the language so not just me and her but other friends that we had could say oh sorry I'm having this is like the peanut I'm starting yes, to lie to you yes absolutely I'm starting to try to give you a front and just to be able to break through that quite quickly with a shared language became really valuable in our real lives and something that's been highlighted a lot at the moment is the the cost of um, suppressing or denying um, certain emotions or certain parts of ourselves, um, costs to our physical health, costs to our emotional well-being. I'm thinking of writers like Gabor Mate. He's, quite, he's, a, he's a person that I have listened to and have quite a lot of time for some areas where I definitely differ from him. But uh, And his um, background is in palliative care and he wrote a book called the I think it's I think it's okay. when the body says no yeah so that the, the when the body says no idea he essentially is thinking that when when people fail to honor their anger or their pain because of fear of not being accepted with what we see as negative emotions in society that becomes internalized and affects the body in stress which then creates more makes it more likely for physical ailments to uh-huh. take hold which is really potentially very helpful and while we're not saying that any physical ailment that you may have is because you're not having authentic conversations with your loved ones like we're not it's not that simple but it does but it is easy to imagine how denying certain aspects of ourselves could lead to problems with our emotional well-being and problems with the relationships that we're having with other people when we talk about the suppression of certain parts of ourselves or the denial of certain emotion And in transactional analysis language, this might be called a racket. In other psychological theories, this might be called a false 
self um, or a front, you know. So it's the idea that the shop front is completely different to what's actually going on inside. But there's a reason that these shop fronts are created. There's a reason that we create these false selves, usually to protect ourselves or to maintain a sense of connection. So certain emotions might not be accepted in someone's family of origin. So they've had to mask it with a different emotion. So, for example, anger could be masked with tears and sadness because it maintains connection. And that has become, whether it's conscious or not, a kind of controlling behaviour, an attempt at manipulation, because rather than simply expressing your feelings with the ability to be honest, you've made a decision somewhere going, actually, oh, well, oh, I'm not going to do that ever, but I am, it's okay to cry, and that will hopefully elicit the right response. You know, you're uh, aiming for a response with an expression of emotion rather than being having faith that, that, that honesty is enough, that being open is the best thing, regardless yes. of the outcome, Yes, which is tiring. That is tiring to constantly preempt outcomes. But I guess in its earliest form, it's unconscious. If we think about infants and caregivers, um, the maintaining a sense of connection is a survival strategy because we can't we can't survive on our own. We're, we're social creatures. We're the most helpless for the longest out of any, pretty much any animal on the planet. So it's, it's a survival mechanism. It might later become more conscious and more, you know, manipulative, as you say. But I think actually in its origin, it's about maintaining connection uh, for survival purposes. And how we are cared for becomes the model of how we treat others. And it's interesting that he, in the, in the film, he has to become altruistic for his own reasons. By the time that he's able to have the relationship with Rita that he actually wanted at the start, he's started to do things for other people for the sake of it. And I don't think it's a coincidence that he starts being kind to himself first. He starts giving himself piano lessons. He starts learning to ice sculpt. Uh-huh. He starts reading and um, expressing himself through his work. Uh-huh. I think that, that those there's a, there's something that I find quite relevant uh, there about if you're always beating yourself up, you don't have the energy to to send uh, to be empathetic and to be altruistic. So that first step of going, I deserve time, I deserve creativity, I deserve peace allows him to genuinely just have the time and energy to think oh, was there something I can do for some other people and he becomes committed to service and that's something Harold Ramis said about you know in his conception of that the journey at the end of it simply the hero becomes invested in service he, he's able to do that and that's not for an outcome and we see the transformation um, in his perspective, like he starts to see the world with fresh eyes, Punxsutawney that he previously hated, you know, he's imagining himself living there now. It's like he can see the goodness in the environment around him when he starts to um, see the goodness in himself. It's like a rebirth. It's like we've seen the ego stuff be dismantled. We've seen the search for authenticity and then we get space for something new. And like you said about the place, the fact that at the end, when he's gone through this process, he says, let's live here. Let's live here. He walks out with Rita into the snow and he just finds it beautiful, you know. And this is the place that he was desperate to escape. Um, 
and it's he's happy and 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 when he's able to enjoy the community all those opportunities to meet people it's not a coincidence i think that this is his fourth year going to punks attorney he's been there three times and he could have already become a respected valued member mm. of that community if he mm-hmm. cared to mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. if that was the sort of person that he wanted to be at that point but he couldn't and now he doesn't want to leave now mm-hmm. he's found this place that he hated is is home and that's uh, it, it could be a bit kind of could seem a bit saccharine but i suppose because the humor is quite dark and because he is quite an ironic sort of character it just earns it it just feels earned it feels like by that time okay have it be happy <laughs> why not live there yeah <laughs> <laughs> i was going to say i think that's a really nice thing about the collaboration between the two writers on this project because i think they have quite uh, different approaches and the combination of them has made something very likable and very powerful because um, Danny Rubin's style is darker and more existential and philosophical and Harold Ramis is is more um, romantic, light and playful mm-hmm. and I feel like their personal styles really combine to make something that's got great light and shade, that's got a great sense of the abyss and horror and and existential angst Mm -hmm. and also you know like the central character and his relationship with Rita you know there's a representative for nihilism and there's a representative for simple joy but then there is something so I said at the start that I've got mixed feelings about aspects of it and in terms of it being 1993 uh, that it was uh, released you know his his uh, the fact that he's a sexually harassing his colleague is you'd really hope that that wouldn't fly as so normal in a movie now or at least would be called out by another character in some way but at that time yeah it's not and also there there are times in the movie where I feel like the the um the male perspective does expose itself um not just in the character but in the writing of the world so that he he comes down one day when he's feeling better, you know, one of his re- repeats, and uh, he realizes that he's there are no consequences to anything. So the first thing he does that morning is grab the older woman who runs the hotel and kiss her on the mouth. And the, her reaction is kind of light and as though it doesn't really matter, but is a bit surprising. And also the fact that he manipulates uh, the woman that he sleeps with by by pumping her for information one day and then using it, lying to her to get her into bed. He tries to do that to Rita, but she rumbles him. You know, those are really serious things that he does. Those those are not light. Yes, yes. And I think that you know because of the beauty of the the the, the piece and the fact that you can kind of forgive anything because it has no consequences. That's it means that this film hasn't dated to the point that I can't enjoy it. But uh, yeah, there's, hopefully times are changing and it would be written differently now. Hopefully the men who wrote it then would have a slightly different perspective now because, you know, casual uh, sexual assaults on women as an expression of sort of joy, joy and joie de vivre 
are really quite common in movies from uh, before the 2000s. You know, men just grab women and snog them because they're feeling peppy. <laughs> Strangers, women going about their daily lives. It's, it's offensive and it's wrong. And that's, that's definitely in there too. So <laughs> I suppose because he's overcoming that as a character, mm-hmm. he's overcoming his, uh, his uh, flaw, which is significantly about objectifying women people in general but women in particular um he does overcome it so Mm. the message is right but some of the aspects of how it gets there are quite troubling and it makes me think about the big philosophical question like you know if the tree falls in the forest but no one's there to hear it does it really fall um you know if i violated somebody but the next day they have no memory of it did i really violate them like of course the answer is yes um absolutely absolutely such a good point yeah all those actions on the journey matter and um certainly a there is a counter reading of this which is um i mean this is the thing so having having spent the most of this going down a, a a joyful route just as there's a joyful side and a philosophical side, you could do a very damning analysis of that uh, yes. concept and yes. his actions. And you could choose rather than to give forgiveness to uh, absolutely condemn him mm-hmm. for all the things that he does, which, mm-hmm. um, which harm others. And to me, it's important to look back over stuff and definitely cast a critical eye over things and, you know, deconstruct some of the tropes and some of the unhelpful stuff but also not to cancel it, you know, this thing of cancel culture. Um, I would much rather look at something critically um, and also acknowledge its good points. It's very, um, that's a very forgiving attitude and a helpful attitude for moving culture forward. And, you know, people don't always have the energy for that, which is absolutely reasonable. Um, yes, yes. And, and it, as yeah, to come, come back to the film for a second, there is, in that progression of, of taking care of himself and then becoming altruistic, Although, you know, he's, he's acting as a representative of all humanity being a white man, as is the uh, trope. Mm-hmm. Um, I still think that is relevant, you know, being, being able to uh, take care of the self, particularly in relation to oppression, particularly in, the, in relation to damage that's been done unknowingly or knowingly by a society that doesn't have space for some identities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think, yeah, there's a, it's wonderful when people have the, the, the energy to, to start to educate others. It's oh. a real kindness. I really enjoyed that. I really you enjoyed were brilliant. That. Thank you so, so much. You were so, so good. Such um, a pleasure. Really fun. Really fun. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for listening, everyone. That's it for today. Stay tuned for more Real Reflections with Rachel Close.